Let's get this show on the road. Let's say a prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for bringing us together this morning to study your word and to grow in your truth. We pray that you would guide us with your Holy Spirit, fill us with his life so that your life might be ours. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Okay, so since this is the last uh, women's Bible study of the spring, I blocked off three hours. We're just going to go until we're done, okay? Um, so there's a bunch of ways to go about this. Uh, I have so many things that we, I would like, like to do, but um, Pastor Nelson and I were talking, and um, you, so let me just, just so I, I know where we stand, how many of right, mm, close your eyes and then raise your hand if you read the section for this week. Okay, you read it. Okay. So then now there's a bunch of stuff in this week's section. So here's how we'll structure this. This week's section is uh, entitled, The Church, the Bride of Christ. Okay? And it sort of centers around what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Um, We need some Bibles. Sorry, I should have taken care of this. But then I was chatting. So, So open up to Ephesians 5. Thank you, Beth. And while we're at it, does everybody have a handout? Does anybody need a handout? All right, Ephesians 5. This is, a, this is a, perhaps one of the most important texts for us to understand what marriage means in the New Testament, which is not to say it means something different than in the Old Testament, but it's the fulfillment of what is what, uh, the gift that God has given to us in marriage. But more importantly... It is a way for us to understand Christ's relationship to the church, which means Christ's relationship to you, who are the church. So just take, uh, let's let's take a second here. Um, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. This is one of the texts that we usually study along with Genesis and um, and, uh, Matthew, um, what God has what God has brought together, let no man put asunder, when we're doing premarital counseling. This is one of the key texts because this is how married, uh, couples ought to understand their marriage. So verse 22, and we usually uh, stop after the first verse and talk for a while. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, um... We're, let's do this first. What are, you, what are your initial reactions to hearing that text? You've heard it before. And, all, and there's a lot, to, a lot to talk about in there. But just for the sake of starting the conversation, what do you, 
What are your reactions? What stands out to you? Carol. One thing has nothing to do with wives or husbands, but it's nobody hates their own body. Yeah. So now this is interesting. So, um, so the word there is flesh, which is so you now it, it is it is actually a distinct word from body, um, and it means more generally the stuff that you're made of. Maybe not specifically the form that it takes. Or even I mean I'm I'm speaking of body as right, not the, but the stuff that I'm made of. All of us. So it, so there's likes and dislikes about the stuff that I. Right. So I think I would posit, and you can test this, I would posit that um, what you observe, and this is true of a lot of people, um, what you observe is that uh, there are likes and dislikes about the form that your flesh takes. But the, but the flesh, the substance, the stuff that you're made of um, is your, your humanity, right? So um, you might say, I wish to be more than flesh, Wish to be flesh and spirit, right? But if you if you hate your own flesh, it's a, it's a self negation. If you hate your if you hate, um, so if you so so you, say you say uh, suppose you say I hate myself. What you really mean to say is I hate the way that I am, but I don't hate the fact that I am, right? I hate the way that I am, but I don't wish not to be. I wish to be different, right? Does that make sense? I wish to be different. And that's what Paul is getting at when, he's, when he uses the word f- flesh there. He's talking about the fact that you are human. Nobody hates their own flesh. They might want to be different, um, and, but that's really just a, sur- a symptom, a surface condition um, that points to something else. Okay? So, but that's a good observation. It, and it, and um, we, we do have to sort of make clear that point that... Um, that at, the, at, its, at its core, uh, it, belongs to, it belongs to humanity to, um, to, to, to love your createdness, to love the fact that you are a creature. Um, we reject this in lots of ways, but finally, we can't, it's, it, it can't be any different. Marilyn, did you raise your hand? I did. Uh, I like the way this follows the relationship between husbands and wives. Because when we think about, we might dislike the way we look, who we are, you know, the, all the things you just said. But yet we feed ourselves, we clothe ourselves, we look to the very basic needs. Right. And when you look at the relationship between husbands and wives, you're going to take care of yourself. So likewise, you take care of your spouse in the same way as Christ takes care of the church. Right. Yeah, that's right. So now, and that, um, you're talking about uh, taking care of our needs. This is actually so. I'm going to pause there for a second and then move forward. I was I was working on um, a sermon for a few weeks out, uh, where Je- so Jesus says, "All who are th- let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, and I will give him living water." It's a, there's so much there's so much there, but the notion of thirst um, is critical because it's a, it's an experience that everybody has, right? So um, you can sort of abstractly think about being thirsty. Um, but that's different than actually experiencing thirst. When you're thirst, when you experience thirst, what happens? What do you do? You get something to drink, right? There's there's sort of no question about it. And the thirstier you get, the the more you set aside everything in order to get a drink. And actually, this uh, of the of the the things that you might uh, that, that are fundamental to life, what food, drink, 
and air, right, breath. Um, your body has these instinctive reactions that um, preserve your breath. So you breathe involuntarily, right? And this is an example of how nobody hates his own flesh, right? You d- in- instinctively, you breathe involuntarily. And in fact, there's this response that happens if you get dunked underwater where... Um, this is why if you want to break the record for holding your breath, you do it underwater because your body has this reaction where it preserves itself. It knows that, it knows that if you breathe right now, you're going to breathe in water. And so the, the, um, the psychological instinct to take in a breath is subdued, a bit at least. Eventually you do. But your body does what it can to protect itself, right? So now, um, this is instinctive. These things are instinctive. And if we observe that at a basic level, we say, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Now, by extension, Jesus, Christ, if Paul says, this is how husbands and wives relate to each other. And this is obvious because, of course, when you're married, you become one flesh, right? So it's not two separate fleshes. It's one flesh. And the beautiful thing uh, that Paul tells us is, if, we, if you look around and you say, um, let, let's observe marriages and relationships and then uh, conclude from what we see how God must be, the picture is not going to be great, right? If you look around at, at marriages and, and families and relationships and say, God is like that, it's not going to be a pretty picture of God. But if instead you flip it and you say, wait a minute, the good things that we have in marriages, this one flesh this mutual love and self-sacrifice, this is a reflection. This is the closest analogy to how God loves us, how Christ loves the church. Then you say, uh, then, then you're in this, this position of, uh, of longing, of desiring for the, the fulfillment of what is so good in relationships, what is so good in marriage. Um, so it becomes a picture that points you forward to something greater, to the fulfillment um, and this is, uh, this is why studying and understanding um, and being, speaking truthfully about marriage is so important because it preserves for us the truth of, of what God, how God relates to us. Nancy. Well, it thinks that, um, I mean, these kind of very definitive statements always bother me about wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Yep. So if he's a serial killer and tells you not to tell anybody, you shouldn't tell. If he beats people of hope every Saturday night, you should go off and submit. Right. I mean, there are some problems here. And then if there are exceptions, how do you know when it's okay? Right, right. So what do you think? The, so, this is, so here we enter into the realm of ethics, which, where we always sort of test ethics by these exceptional cases, right? So here's the rule. Um, what do we do? Marilyn. We're supposed to be at the beginning of this chapter 5. Imitators of God. Right. And that's what we use as our God. Right. If he would, if that's what God would do, then that's what we do. Right. So he wouldn't, I, well, I guess, hmm, that's what I'm yeah. running into a problem. Hmm. You know, Jesus got beaten up and so on and so forth. But it was for a reason for us. I mean, I don't know that that would be true in a case of a husband or wife beating the other spouse. Holly, what do you think? Well, I don't know that this is really speaking to those kind of people. Okay. Um, because it says, you know, for the husband is the head of the wife, because Christ is the head of the church. So the only way that... Uh, it just seems like this is for the husbands and wives that are within the church. Yes. 
Right. So that, 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 and that's... I have to say that that could be an abusive relationship, obviously. But I feel like it's to a different level Right. Yeah. Go ahead, Marilyn. Oh, I was just going to say the qualifier here is what Christ would do. Mm-hmm. And so a husband that beats up his wife, that's certainly not what Christ does to the church. Right. I mean, he doesn't, you know, harm us in any way. Right. So neither should a husband. Right. So, so what happens then? This is, this is a really good way to think about it. What happens if a husband beats his wife? What happens to their marriage? Yeah, in some in some way, in some way the marriage is broken, right? Now, um, the, the, so this is this here you enter into the realm of really challenging pastoral matters, right? Because um, uh, anytime you sin against your spouse, you're breaking your marriage, right? You promised promised fidelity and um, and mutual self giving. Which of course nobody does. Um, so, so the question is, um, I think Holly, you get at it a bit there. Uh, are these people Christians? And if they're Christians, then what happens? Then then their marriage is in the context of the church, right? Um, and a certain set of things, a certain uh, sequence of events happens, right? So somebody comes in and their their husband's uh, beating them up. Um, we we have something to say about that, right? Um, it doesn't just, it just it, it's not, okay, just hang in there, you'll be, you'll be all right, right? No, we have something to say about that. Namely, to the husband, you are sinning against your wife, and if you are okay with this, if you think this is, a, this is the way that Christ wants you to behave, then you're not a Christian, right? And, so, and you're breaking your marriage vows. You're effectively divorcing your spouse, Right? Um, so it ha- that takes place in the context of the church, uh, which is a really good observation um, and, th- and important for us to understand. And also, it's important for us to see then the role that the community has in, in marriages and in families, right? So we are all accountable to each other, to the, to the body, right? So um, it's not that, it's not that any, any abused spouse is, should ever be in the position of having to stand up and say, um, you know, assert his or her rights on the spot, it should be that the community comes to the rescue, right? The community defends. Go ahead, Aaron. Well, I mean, as a wife, like, your husband is your husband, and your husband is also your brother in Christ, so your role is also to encourage him to good, right. to bring him to reconciliation with yourself and with God, and so if you're the wife and you're just saying, well, I'm supposed to submit, so I'm going to let him continue to sin, you're not helping your husband by him. Absolutely. Go and tell people, like, look, this is what's happening, and it has to end. If your church then fails you, yep. then you have to go somewhere else because you can't, I mean, you can't let your husband continue in that sin. That's absolutely right. And this is, so you actually, you then see how the God's created order is so, is so beautiful, right? Because you have, you have immediately around you your family who, who ought to help you. You have your community, your church, the people otherwise around you who ought to help you who ought to encourage your brother, your husband, to reconciliation. And finally, you also have the state to look out for you, right? So you say, if, if nobody's helping you, you say, this is against the law, right? Um, and it's, it's out of love for not just um, my husband, but also for, the society, for society to invoke the, the protection of the state. 
So, yeah, and, and that is, I mean, it, it fails in so many ways, right? This is the thing that's scary, is, that's scary right? Cause, and this is why when you read something like this, you immediately think of these exceptional situations because we know, we know they abound. We know that it fails all the time. Um, so for us, it's an encouragement to sort of be attentive and to, to love each other the way that Christ encourages us to love each other and, and to know that, um, that I mean, it, it flies in the face of our ideals of independence. We need each other, right? Uh, people who are struggling need other people. Uh, you can't, it's, it's not, you're not meant to go by yourself. Krista. Professor, what, what, what do you say when pastors are, de- are getting divorced? That's I, I saw it in, in Germany several times. Uh, I, so, that's a, it's a long conversation <laughs> between me and the pastor. That's what I... <laughs> um, now, this is... Okay, so we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not answer your question. But I'm going to take your thought, and we're going to segue for just a second, okay? Actually, I wanted to get to this, so this is really helpful. And I'm sorry not to answer your question. But really, it does amount to... Um, well, so there's humanist rest of us, but in, in another sense, pastors are held to a different standard, right? Paul says, the husband of one wife. Um, and why is that? Now, this, is, this, is, this, this will help answer the question. Again, um, so many things that we want to answer with rules or that we want to come up with um, sort of easy ways, short ways to answer questions, they are, they are um, only answered by prayer and fasting. You don't, you don't, and by mutual consolation, right? Um, so there's work to be done in, in any situation where sin shows up in the church. But why do you suppose... Um, Divorce, in the case of a pastor, might be a peculiar thing, might be different than um, for a layperson. Not only has, for whatever reasons, the marriage has been broken, there's multiple marriages. Yes! Multiple marriages, right? Can you describe that? Well, as I say, the ordination is... Okay, good. Yeah, right. Surely. Well, I was going to say, because of your ordinations, you are part, you are, have accepted yourself as the partnership of Christ right. and the partnership of the community. And so, therefore, the pastor is put on a different standard, and his, actually, his whole family is put on a different standard than right. I might be. Right. So, so now this is, this is crucial. Um, I, the, and just so you know, the question I'm really getting at here in some, in some ways is the question I think you asked early on, earlier in the year, was what about, what about women pastors? Okay, so let's engage that question. But here's one way, one way why we get at it is um, what, what does a pastor do or who is a pastor? He's somebody who stands in the place of Christ, right? Who represents Christ to Christ's bride, the church. Um, and so as there's this simultaneous, this parallel, for a, for a married man, there's the, there are these two marriages, right? Um, and if you, are, if you are unfaithful in one, right, if you uh, break one, 
then you, you've, you have sacrificed your, you have given up um, your, I don't know what, your, your claim, your credibility, your um, headship altogether, right? You're saying, you're saying I, uh, that divorce is a possibility in these relationships, um, which is not possible for a pastor of a church, right? It's not possible. Because um, uh, that's not what Christ does. What does Christ do? Um, even in the face, so Jesus says, uh, you've heard it said, you can give your spouse a certificate of divorce um, for any reason. But I say to you, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another, causes, and, and she marries another, causes her to commit adultery, right? Uh, and he says, uh, he gives us the sort of uh, glancing exception in the case of, of, in, of adultery. Um, but Jesus says, you know, even in those cases, what God has brought together, let no man put asunder. Well, what does Jesus do in the case of adultery? What does Jesus do in the face of infidelity? Do you know? He said, without That's true. Yep. So Jesus, it, it, absolutely. Um, so Jesus proves to be more faithful. How about Hosea? He takes her back. <laughs> yeah, Hosea 3. The Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Um, and this is, this is what... So Hosea is called to enact this prophetically in his, in his actions. God says to him, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. At that time when she was wedded to, to God, where Israel was born and became God's people. Um, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, my Lord. For I will remove the name of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered no more. So, in... This is crucial for understanding what a pastor does. It's not just um, a leadership position, right? It's not just a generic leadership position. Go ahead, Shirley. Then why is it our church uh, structure will allow a wife to divorce the minister or her pastor, but yet the pastor, they frown highly upon the pastor divorcing his wife? So policies are always... Tricky, right? Um, there is um, divorces are divorces are not always mutual, right? Right, um, and so uh, you can be you can be un- involuntarily your marriage can be involuntarily broken. And in fact, this is uh, Paul gives the example. Of, we were talking about this uh, earlier today. Paul gives the example of a um, unbelieving spouse who refuses to live with his believing, his or her believing spouse. In that case, um, for the sake of the believer, divorce is is legitimate because um, the believer needs the needs a family, right? The believer needs people, um, and so you know, in the case of um, pastor and his wife. It's always, it's, the, the question is always, what's going to serve the, the body of Christ, 
What's going to serve the people of God? Um, those questions are poorly answered by policies. I'll just, we'll just say that, right? They're poorly answered by policies. Um, and and it, life is messy. So, another non-answer. Okay. Let me get back to this. So, um, so, now, so now we have this sense in which a pastor stands in the place of Christ as the bridegroom of the church. Okay? So bear that in mind. From everything that you've heard so far this spring, um, can you come up, can you, can you describe why it is that we don't have women pastors? Using, using the whole array of language and vocabulary that we've gained over the last couple of months, what do you think? Yeah, Donna. Could it be um, this passage from Ephesians? Right. So, so this is this is an important observation. There's headship involved, right? And headship is in Christ tied to masculinity, right? Rachel. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Take take a look at. Um, uh, the, on the handout I gave you, the side that says it's landscape, Johann Gerhardt, Sacred Meditations. Um, on the right side, the first, the full paragraph that begins on the right side, the Holy Church of God. The Holy Church of God sustains the relations of mother, virgin, bride. She is as a mother because she daily bears spiritual sons to God. She is as a chaste virgin because she keeps herself pure from all unholy alliances with the devil and the world. She is a bride because Christ hath betrothed her to himself by an eternal covenant and hath given her the pledge of the Spirit. The church is that ship which carries Christ and his disciples and which will bear, finally, bear us finally into the haven of eternal blessedness. The church thus sails in a blessed course over the sea of this world, having... And there's beautiful imagery that follows. Furnished with faith as a rudder, having God for her pilot, angels for her oarsmen, and all the company of the godly for her passengers. But they, and the, uh, previous, on the previous page, um, there's this uh, a really common phrase, no man will have God for his father in heaven who refuses to have the church for his mother upon the earth. Right. So the church is explicitly feminine in that it's bride and mother, and virgin, chaste, right? Kept from defilement by, but with other husbands, with other, with other uh, lovers. Um, which then puts the head of that, of that church in the role of the, of the father, the masculine, right? So in, in a really sort of profound and, vi- and vivid way, a woman who stands up and, and, ta- and claims that position uh, can't say the things that, a man can say, right? Can a woman say, I am father, right? It's just not, it's not true. It's not possible. Aaron. I guess then it leaves me a little bit confused because the church body is made up of men and women, so then men are saying, as the church, it's unfair to say as the mother. Well, so exactly. So now this, this um, John Paul talks about this in his, in, in the section we had for this week. So um, the church is, um, in its relationship, it, so uh, as composed of believers, right, they're all in, in the position of being bride, right? So I am bride, you are bride, um, and we as the church 
give birth to spiritual children, right? Born, born from Christ. But uh, somebody who stands up before the congregation publicly in the position of, uh, of authority, of speaking on behalf of Jesus, in that office is not mother or bride or sister or wife, right? Just father and husband. Holly. Right. So, um, and that's a that's a crucial word there. Could right. So, a woman could do all of the things that a pastor does. Right. Preach, say the words of institution, um, uh, act on behalf, uh, act in the liturgy, in the public proclamation of the word. Um, just and Pastor Brzezik always gives this example, right? You could drive the bus, but you have, but but you haven't been asked to, right? Um, and Je- so Jesus has a reason for asking men in particular to do it because it preserves the image of God's relationship to the church, right? The bridegroom-bride relationship. Barb. Uh, uh, you just said what I was going to say, that one of the things that they're really taking away from this, what we've been doing in the study, is that there are roles right. for men and there are roles for women, and they are different. Yeah. And it doesn't mean a woman couldn't... Be a pastor. She, of course, she could do a sermon and she could mm-hmm. do all these things, but that's not what God wants a female to do. Right. And so that's, we have roles. And yeah. They're for the good of the church and for the good of everything. So. Right. So th- this is great. I keep, don't, keep your hands, well, put them back up when I'm ready to hear from you. But I don't want to lose what, what, you're, what you're thinking, but I just want to comment on that. I think this is a crucial observation, too. Um, one of the reasons why you might resist having a male-only pastorate is because we are so, uh, we're so um, impressed by the importance of equality, right? Of making sure that, uh, that nobody is oppressed, um, that, that women are, are treated with respect and honor and dignity, right? Because our culture has done a poor job of that. The... Extension of that, though, is to eradicate all differences, to say there are no differences. But we, we're in this beautiful position of saying, no, we, there is a special dignity that's, that's given to women that's different than the dignity given to men, right? Um, it's not that it's the same dignity. It's different. Equal in glory, right? Equal, equal in the eyes of God. But just as God made them male and female, he gave them different things to do, right? Beth. Right. And then if you're in a position of pastors, you're called to be a 
Right, right. It just, it just struck me like, well, yeah, that's, I mean. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 that, yeah. <laughs> right, and it, which is not to say, now, of course, this is an interesting observation, again, because it's, it's not to say that, that fathers don't have the same, don't, don't ha- aren't pressed in the same way, but it is, it's different in that um, fathers are indispensable for the lives of their children in a different way than mothers are, right? My kids can eat without me. They don't need me to eat, um, Right? So, again, it points to the differentiation, right? They're, we're different. Um, and so God has different uses for us. Aaron. I guess I was trying to get back to the, yes. the idea of how, you know, a man in the church is considered mother in a sense. But, and I don't know exactly where it goes, so maybe you can help me work this out. But does it have to do with, so as a pastor, that's a role for an individual, whereas when you're referring to the church, it's always we. It's never just I am mother. Yeah, so I mean, I, I don't know if that's, if that's quite, I'd have to f- carry that a little bit further to see whether that's um, precisely it. I think the, the best way to think of it is in terms of distinct stations, distinct offices, right? So, and, and everybody occupies different, at the same time, different stations in life, right? Luther talks this way in the small catechism. You are simultaneously child and, and parent, right? Uh, brother or sister, um, citizen, member of the church, right? You have all of these different stations. Now, <clears throat> in those different roles, so when I, as, as I relate to my, my parents, I'm not father whatsoever, right? Um, I'm, I'm purely son, right? Um, so, and, and this is one way to look at it. So as you are a member of the church, as you are a member of Christ's body, as I'm a member of Christ's body, my relationship is, is pulled in all kinds of different directions, as I relate to God, I receive 100% purely in a Marian way, right? Marian receptivity is my existence. Um, and this is uh, something that's really challenging for, um, for the world. It's challenging for the church. Um, so in my relationship to God, as a, as a member of the church, I'm purely receptive. In... Uh, my relationship in my family, my role is to give, right, as father and husband. Um, those two things are not mutually exclusive. They have different uh, arenas of operation. Um, and it is a peculiar thing about the way that the, the church talks, about the way Christ talks, that I can somehow occupy both of them at the same time, right? So um, then, then you're right. We, as the church, are, give birth to spiritual children in the sense that we um, receive God's gifts, we receive Christ's gift, and we raise up godly offspring, right? Um, so then, it is not, um, it's not just by the will of, it's not like by my decision that I stand in the position of pastor, right? It's not that somebody stands up and says, um, you know what, I feel like, being the head in this situation, right? If I did that, <clears throat> you'd have no reason to listen to me. You'd say, no, you're, you're just like the rest of us, right? You are um, in the position of receiving. Um, but, the, but the church, because God ordained it in this way, um, elects pastors and asks God to put them into this position of, uh, of giving, 
like Christ gives, right? So it's a special office established, instituted by God. Um, Actually called by God. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And it, it, if it were by um, my will, then I would be, again, violating, just, just as, a, as a female pastor would be violating what God has intended, um, I would be doing the same thing because it's not, it's not given to me. Holly, go ahead. Um, I don't know if Maryland so this but like the, the Reformation, Luther wanted, maybe we were just having a conversation. Luther wanted the men who received, you know, as like the bride of Christ to go home and then be the heads of the household yeah. to teach their children. So what they've received, now they might receive in their own household. Right. And perhaps... That brings us to back to Ephesians and how the family, you know, the husband is is submitted to by the wife, and then the children are obedient to the father. Right. Just like picture of the church. Right. Um, In in John, Jesus talks this way all the time. I've received from the Father, and I'm going to give to you. And then he says to the, the apostles, uh, "My peace I give to you. My peace I leave to you. Whoever sins, you forgive. They're, they're forgiven." Right. He gives them. He gives them his gift, and then they are tasked with giving that out, right? Uh, John In John 7, again, um, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and I will give him living water. And that water will become in him, in his, the word is, uh, like in his intestines. In his inner being, it will become springs of living water welling up to eternal life, right? So you receive living water, the Holy Spirit, baptism, and then what happens to you is you become a giver um, to, to the people um, to whom you've been given, right? Uh, not, not outside the, the appointment of God. Um, Aaron, I think that one, one other crucial... So you, you, might, you might... You might say, or you might object saying... Um, why, why can't um, a woman be put in the position of, why can't God, why couldn't God have meant that women can be given the office and so be in the position of also giving, right? Why is that tied to what seems to be physiological, biological, right, attributes, which we otherwise ignore, right? So when, when a man is a member of the church, in spite of the fact that he's masculine, he is receiving, right? So why, why is this the case? Um, it's a question. Uh, the question is, uh, needs to be flipped. Why does Jesus choose to give this to men? Because he does that explicitly. Right? He gathers his apostles and he gives it to men. Why does he do that? Again, not because women couldn't do it, but because in doing so, he shows the relationship, this masculine-feminine giver-receiver relationship. He, he illuminates it. Right? He makes it more clear. Um, and, I mean, that's, that's reason enough. Right? Um, go ahead, Krista. I think, Pastor, as it's a tradition, I think it's a wonderful when uh, the Russian... Um, um, uh, uh, um, what was it? Bishop. Yeah, Bishop came. And mm. he said, um, uh, Apostolic uh, Lutheran Church. And I think... Um, if you think of Calvin and the other reformers, then it's a little bit diluted. And in and, and this way, I think um, 
that uh, women are encouraged to uh, to preach and teach. You know, and I think that's um, that's here. You will see, and, uh, and I can only say in German. Yeah. But uh, but I think um, uh, <coughs> the uh, apostolic um, statement is uh, the most important. Right. That, uh, that uh, from. Peter down there, I thought it was a wonderful right. creature yeah. that uh, uh, Jesus chose men. Right. And, you know, it, so interestingly, to that, to, to that point, one of the reasons why the, the question even arises in the first place is because historically men have been terrible at, at receiving the, the position of headship, of being, in the, of being heads faithfully. Right. Usually, I mean, this is why we, why immediately when we hear the word submit, we think of um, uh, abuse of it, right? Of domineering, because men are terrible at being good heads, um, and so you know, uh, it's it's sort of it becomes a situation where the where we panic and say, well, what what can we do? What's somebody's got to step up and do the job, right? Um, which is not the it's not the right answer, but it is the, the right it's the problem. Um, in a lot of cases, this is why it's great that Justin's going to be a pastor, <laughs> because he's he's uh, he's filling a role that's peculiar and uh, needs to be filled. Um, okay, so uh, Aaron, I want to make sure that that question is answered well. Can you? Uh, how's it? How's it going? Yes, we did. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was, I was always raised in like a conservative evangelical context, believing that women may not be pastors. Right. And I, I, I feel like there's, there's so many people who are just battling against that. Mm-hmm. That, and it just feels like there's so many arguments where it's like you, you go with one, and they're like, yeah, but what about this? Right. You go with one, and they're like, yeah, but what about this? Right. So it's like those questions are coming. Yeah, and so and part of the reason for that, this it's the same experience with with as when we talk about marriage, um, in the world, right? Uh, marriages between man and woman. Well, what about you know this or what about that? Um, the reason why we have why we can't be more definite is because it's not a matter of it's not a legal matter, it's not a prohibition. Um, so we're not quite right if, we, if all we say is women may not be pastors. We're not quite right. We're right if we say God, has, God asks men to be pastors of the church, right? It's not that God first says, let there be pastors, and then we have to decide who fills that role, right? Um, it's not, and, and so it's not, a, it's not an ethical question in that sense. It's God asks men to be pastors just like he asks women to be mothers, right? And men to be fathers, um, it's not, it's not a quite, you don't say, you don't say to men, you may not be mothers, right? If you, if, if you find yourself in that, in the position of saying that something's wrong, right? You're confused about how things work, um, because it's not, it's just not been given in the first place. So, and the, the same thing is true of, of marriage, um, you know, there are all kinds of prohibitions about what, about how marriage can't take place, but more fundamental than any of that is, that marriage is a gift given by God, right? Um, and it's, it's from the gospel. It's in view of the gospel. 
Families are a gift from God in view of the gospel. It's not, you must be a son or a daughter, right? It's, here you go, here's a family, right? Okay, somebody had a hand. Aaron, not Aaron, Katie. Um, so, David started doing altar service, and immediately Nora was like, I want to do this Like, can I, can I do it? And we were like, well, actually, no. And so then my first instinct as a mom is like, I can't tell my daughter. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so, um, when I was talking to Mary Caesar, she was like, well, she can do all the You know, she can come out and help us with that. So it's like, if you focus so much on what you can't do, then you're not thinking about what you can do. Mm. I guess, like, and I, I feel like I've heard of that, and that, I think that makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, I know so many... I don't know, so like what you said about that. Like, okay, so that's very practical, but then we've also talked about how men have failed in the role of leadership so often. Mm-hmm. And then I've met so many women who are like, hey, look at all my gifts. I should be a pastor. Like, I, I'm good at teaching, I'm good at leading, I'm good at shepherding. But it's not just about, like, but you know what I mean? It's not quite mm-hmm. like, Okay, practically speaking, how can we use your gifts? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Right, yeah, so it's not, so we don't have, um, it's not like we have in life just a bunch of boxes where you plug, where you, where you disconnect parts of people and you plug them in here or there, right? Um, sometimes it looks that way um, because some people are, excel at, at some things and, and are poor at other things. The, the, way, the way of looking at the world and our lives and what we ought to do, our, our place in life, um, is, is very different. Um, it has to do much more with uh, um, applying your skills, applying your gifts where you've been given to apply them, right? So the, the where you've been given is much more important than, than what you've been given in, in, in a large, to a large extent, right? Um, we, um, we get this wrong in the opposite direction a lot of the time because we say men can be pastors. Let's shovel all the men into the seminary, regardless of their skills or abilities, right? Which is, you know, to get it to get it wrong in a different direction to say that, um, you know, where you belong in life, where you fit in life, what God has in store for you, is also a function of your your aptitudes, right? But but in the first place. Um, the question is, what has God given me to do? Surely. I've also, I've had one time that I came about the fact that they should be able to be uh, pastor. And I've always referred him back uh, to uh, John, where he says that I am the Father, uh, and that the Father is in me, and therefore it is not my words that I give, but it is the Lord's right. words. I don't remember. I was trying to find the passage. Right. Yeah, I don't speak from my own authority, but I just say what I've, it's been given to me. And I, and I kind of use that as my argument point that the Lord has designated man as the head of the household, as the groom uh, of the bride of Christ. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that is our, our uh, background. Yeah. That, that is what we've been taught to believe through Scripture. Right. Right. Rachel. Because I, I think that you can argue and argue and argue and all kinds of good reasons. Right. And no matter how smart and talented 
and whatever else we are, we are what God has told us ultimately. Mm-hmm. And you know, God, like you said, God gave that role to men, and we have to obey that. Right. Which is, I mean, a tremendously unpopular thing to do, right? To obey, right? So, you're, but you're right, absolutely. Yeah, Rachel. Well, and we obey because of our protection. Oh yeah. It is incredibly. It's so I'm so glad, like I get to be mother and wife, and I don't have to think about being a pastor. You know, it's for our protection. Like poor Beth's friend, who's trying to nurse a baby, <laughs> preach a sermon. You know, God gave you that to protect you. You don't. You don't have to do that. That's for. You know, like, yeah, yeah. Which you know, uh, right? And, and that's such a um, a valuable, uh, mature and rich way of of thinking about things. Um, to to first of all assume that God has given us things in the way He's given them to us for our good, right? And not to not because He's trying to get at us or make you know. Yes. Um, so, so like we, we refer uh, several times, like that God has given this role to men, and and I've always, I always, I do believe that, and I have always believed that, but I feel like I don't always understand um, how to talk. Okay, so I've heard people go through scripture, and they say, well, yes, in scripture it says that men are to be pastors. But then they say, yeah, but in scripture it also says that the women are, it, it, like, close, close by there it says women should cover their heads when they're in the church. And they right. It's like, well, that was a, I always hear, well, that was a culture. Right. Now that's changed. Yeah. And I was like, no, you're wrong, but I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is. That's just a big, like, going through scripture and doing the work and figuring out. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is, uh, the, this is the problem with having a historically contingent faith, right? So it's a problem in so many ways that Jesus came in Galilee in, in the first century, right? It's a problem because then we have to sort these things out, right? So we, you do have to ask the question, um, uh, what, of, what, what, what things of, from what Paul says are um, for the sake of the, for the sake of consciences, right? For the sake of uh, honor and dignity, and what things are, for the sake of God's created divine order. Um, and Paul, Paul, the helpful thing is that Paul tells us, and the, the early church tells us that they make decisions balancing these things um, in play. So, for instance, in the Jerusalem Council, one of the, the one of the crucial instances and in, episodes in the, the beginning of the church, they the church was trying to decide what to do with, with Gentiles, right? They don't follow uh, our Jewish regulations, right? They're not circumcised. They um, eat all kinds of strange food, right? They also eat food sacrificed to idols. Um, you know, how, where do we draw the line? What of Judaism do they have to absorb in order to be Christians, Right? Um, and so the church sorted these things out. The, the epistles, the New Testament, is sort of the chronicles this journey, right? Paul says it's not circumcision, right? Circumcision was a sign of the old covenant. We have a new kind of circumcision, circumcision of the heart, right? Um, he says, then it, it, the really interesting case is 
food sacrificed to idols. Well, do you remember what Paul says about food sacrificed to idols? He says it's, 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 just, it's just food, right? But if somebody thinks that it's actually been sacrificed to a god, then you shouldn't eat it for their sake, right? Um, because to them, it means something that is evil, and so for, their, for the sake of their consciences, you need to be on guard, right? It's for the sake of their consciences. So the same thing then is at play when we come to questions of how, what, how, the, how the church should be ordered, right? Um, should, should, should women cover their heads when they come to church? Well, it doesn't make one lick of difference in our culture whether or not you cover your head. It doesn't make it, it doesn't, nobody cares, <laughs> right? But it made a difference. It had to, it had to do with shame, Right, you're, you're, If you uncover your head, I mean, think of the woman who comes and anoints Jesus' feet with her hair, right? Um, who was, now, remember we talked about this, she was without shame, not shameless, because she was in this position of being seen by Jesus for who she was, being, being uh, seen as um, somebody who should be afforded honor and not an object. Um, but in the, in the church, in the public, that meant something different. It meant, it meant something that needed to be guarded against. Right? So the, now, like you said, we, I would be great if, there, if, it wasn't, if it didn't involve the hard work of going through the text. But this, and this is why we have professional theologians to, to do this kind of stuff. Um, Krista. I have only one question. Yes. Um, what do you think of women's liberation? <laughs> Small question. <laughs> uh, I guess I don't know, I don't understand the question. <laughs> Women's liberation. Yeah, that would be. I think um, a woman could be a pastor too. When she said, "Why man? I have the same intelligence." Right. And uh, um, and you know, and actually, um, uh, there are women pastors. Right. And uh, um, and in uh, many other fields that women said, um, I can do the same mm-hmm. as men do. Right. So, again, it's, it, and this is good for us to, to, to sum things up, right? There's a difference between... So, talking about aptitude, what I can do, is one thing. The more fundamental thing is the question of what you've been given to do, right? So, um, the liberation of women, when it means being freed from un godly um, bindings, that is a, a wonderful thing. And the church should be for that. And we are for that, right? Um, but when it, uh, when it suggests that um, all differentiation between men and women ought to be eradicated, or that God has no say in who occupies different offices in life, not just pastor, but mother, father, worker, um, you know, parent, children, um, that's it's, it's an evil. It's, uh, it's disobedience. It's saying, yeah, uh, God has said something, but I don't like it. And so I'm going to, you know, I, I mean, it's, it, it's the primordial sin, right? I would much rather be like God than to receive what he's given me. Um, so now, this is great. What else? Tina. So, 
this is all well and good talking here. Sure it is. <laughs> and you know, I think you're kind of preaching to the choir even. Mm-hmm. Even if we have questions, we, we're on board with it. So now I go to lunch with my friends, and you know, we have a friend who's was ordained last year as a pastor, and everybody's, oh, and look how hard she worked. This is great, you know. And I say, well, God didn't ask you to do that. Yeah, you might. <laughs> yeah. D- depends on where you are in the lunch that you might that you say that. Right? Because, I mean, so you see, you see the, uh, just what kind of um, uh, the depth of the, of the frame of reference you need to have in order to even get to that point, right? Because we've talked about um, a, a sort of a revolutionary way of thinking about men and women that the world is t- totally unfamiliar with, right? So, um, and that's, that's, that's the question at stake when you talk to any individual, right? Um, uh, my gut instinct is to say, oh, that's abominable. You should quit. But, but that, does not, that does not help anybody. <laughs> does not help me. Does not help them. Um, you know, it, it, so... As with you know, as with sort of any endeavor in, in, in apologetics and saying the truth, speaking the truth, you got to find where the the point of the, where the rub is, right? Um, and also, what you what you find with and this is true of ourselves as well, right? What you find as you learn, as you grow, um, you you encounter crises all the time, right? Points where you where you where you um, assenting to God's what God says, believing, saying amen to what God says, requires that you change something in your life, right? This, ha- this is uh, the life of repentance of a Christian. And if you say, um, I'm unwilling when I encounter a crisis to, um, to admit the possibility of having to change something, that's problematic for your faith, right? But So we experience these, these sort of crises all the time as we learn what God says to us, um, and so we should expect them to also happen as we um, teach, as we um, uh, show people what it is to lead godly lives. Um, it's not easy, right? Um, and it, it, so, yeah, Barb. So you just have to sometimes agree to disagree. My husband is um, Cal- the Calvinistic yeah. And he was very strong in his faith, which is one reason why I married him, um, even though he was a different religion and I was Lutheran. And there's a lot of things that come up. In fact, they now have a new pastor. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, well, how could you all these years say this is not correct? And all? I said, you know, I think it is because you're running out of men who want our pastors. And therefore, <laughs> all of a sudden, it's okay that women can be pastors so that you can fulfill your, your pulpits. Yeah. But, but we, we have a lot of disagreements, but, you know, I learned so much from them, but yet there are things that we just disagree on. Right. I don't know. I just think we have a wonderful marriage, even though we have different religions, because we can pull from each other and try to understand, but there are some things that he believes that I just don't see, and I believe that he does Yeah, and, and that, what you experience there is... Um, a, is a perennial problem for the church. We always, I mean, be, we always have to be asking the question: How can we be united with other Christians? Right? Because I believe he's going to be saved. Yeah. So it's even though he, his church has these other beliefs, than he had women pastors. You know, my husband's going to go to heaven, and I'm going to go to heaven. Right. And they're not. 
detrimental. Right. So, and this is, I mean, that, that's really the question that, that we always have to be asking. Um, it's not cold. It, so, right. So, it's not a cold blast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry you can't feel the wonderful things I feel when I have communion and things like that. It's just very, but he says, but, yeah, but I do feel those things. It's just that. Right. Because they don't believe that it's the true blood of blood. Right. Right. And, um, but he says, but I do have a oneness with Christ when I get. I mean, when he explains, it's okay almost, but it's not there. Right. So I just tell him, I don't think you, I, I'm sorry for you because you don't, you don't feel the true, you know, getting Christ in you. Right. Yeah. Like that, but it's. I think that that's a, that's a great way to put it. I disagree. That's all I Yeah. So, so, so. To say I'm sorry for you is is a you know um, is a good confession of what you actually believe. Like Holly said, it's not it's not full blast, right? And in fact, um, you know I'm sorry for you because it's it's because it's not full blast because you know you're not receiving what Jesus everything that Jesus has promised you, and in fact you you misunderstand what He's giving to you. Um, it's it, you know it's risky, right? Why would you why why you know why would you want to be in that position? Well. There are all kinds of reasons why people sort of wrestle with things. Um, so we, we are stuck in this tension all the time as the church and as individuals in our relationships between, on the one hand, um, being united in Christ with all believers because we believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, right? Um, and on the other hand, not um, saying that differences don't matter. Right, so and I think you do a good job of that when you say, "I'm sorry for you." Right, I'm sorry for you because this does actually matter. But I also know that I'm that at this point in our relationship, I'm probably not gonna, I'm not gonna argue you into it. Right, um, but, but he knows he knows your confession. He knows what you say. Right, this is why we as the church have to speak really clearly about things so that people know what we say. Right, so that when we say, "Yes, we're Christians," we sh- we are the body of Christ together. But we, but look, look, this is important stuff, um, and and you know we're not going to kill you over it, right? Because that's not what Jesus wants us to do. But we're going to say we're going to we're not going to stop saying this because it's true. Aaron, I really wrestled with all those questions because I grew up in the evangelical tradition, and I grew up just I mean, not just Catholic, but Catholic Church Right, because it feels like I'm saying it's more of like, look, I've got the 
Yeah. As, so often we, we, find, we wind up in um, a cult of, of being right, where, where get, uh, getting, getting things right becomes the most important thing. Um, and that's idolatry, right? So, and when you're in that position where you say, um, for me, faith consists of getting things right and, and anathematizing, saying that everybody else who gets things wrong is horrible and going to hell, right? That's, uh, that's not Christianity, right? Because Christianity doesn't consist of getting things right. It consists of Jesus making you right with God. Um, and... What happens, what follows from that is, again, these, these, uh, this fountain of living water uh, uh, springing up to eternal life. Um, what, what follows from that is not, um, you know, setting you over against everybody else in the world, but bringing you, bringing you a, riches, a riches, a richness that you can't help but want for other people to have, right? So you don't, you don't come at people who disagree about doctrine. You don't come at them with hatred. You don't say, uh, you know, um, you're just such a terrible person for getting this wrong. You say, ah, I'm so sorry you got this wrong because it would be so much better if you got it right. Um, and that's a really, that's a really great, I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, that, no, that's okay. That... Um, that sort, of, that sort of turn in the way you think about things is the difference between, is the, difference between um, the way the world loves and, and the way God loves, right? So, you know, the disciples all along are little faith people, right? Oligopistoi. They, oh, you have little faith. And even in Mark, at the very end, Jesus rises from the dead. Do you still not believe, he says, right? Um, but he's compassionate to them, and he just keeps giving it to them, Right? Because he's because he can't do anything else, Justin. Uh, if I may, a lot of these comments make me think of the uh, John Paul II's document in paragraph twenty-six. Uh, so paragraph twenty-six is page thirty-seven, the second paragraph. And I think he ties a lot of this about the Eucharist and the passion of the bread in Ephesians, and talk about the bridegroom and why we have male male uh, pastors. So I'm going to start uh, halfway through the second paragraph. As the redeemer of the world, Christ is the bridegroom of of the church. The Eucharist is the sacrament of our redemption, is the sacrament of the bridegroom and of the bride. The Eucharist makes present and realizes anew in a sacramental manner the redemptive act of Christ, who creates the church, his body. Christ is united with this body as the bridegroom with the bride. All this is contained in letter to the Ephesians. And then on the next page, um, it is legitimate, legitimate to conclude that he thereby wished to express the relationship between man and woman, between what is feminine and masculine. It is a relationship willed by God, both in the mystery of creation and the mystery of redemption. It is the Eucharist above all that expresses the redemptive act of Christ as the bridegroom towards the church, the bride. And this is clear and unambiguous when the sacramental ministry of the Eucharist in, the, in which the priest acts in persona Christi is performed by a man. 
Um, so I think that speaks into a lot of the, or one of the important reasons why we have uh, males and, and masculine priesthood. Right. And it, so it, it points to that, and also the, the, um, the birth of the church in the Eucharist, right? This is the consummation. This is the central, um, this is where the bride and the bridegroom become one. Um, that also tells us about, about this conversation about, you know, um, how you understand disagreements, right? Um, where is there true unity found? Not in you and I uh, coming to terms about something, but true unity is found in Christ's body. It's Christ's unity to give. It's his gift to the church. It's not ours to forge, but it's ours to receive from Christ. And this complicates things enormously because we want to sort things out. We want to, we want to, have, we want to be able to put people in nice, neat categories and say, um, yeah, if you believe this but you don't believe that, you're probably not going to heaven. Um, the, that's really not the question. The question is, are you in Christ or not? Um, and how do we? How does that happen? It happens when Christ gives Himself to us, right? Okay, it's been good. Anything else we should do before we go? Pray. pray. Sounds good. Lord, remember us in Your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, come back next year.